This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Hello, I'm Lauren Martin from the Caldor Centre. Welcome to this special interview with Shuja Jamal. Ahmad Shuja Jamal has co-authored a new book, The Decline and Fall of Republican Afghanistan, with William Maley, Emeritus Professor of Diplomacy at the Australian National University. It's a must-read definitive account that reviewers have called sobering, chilling, and compelling. Former Australian Foreign Minister Gareth Evans calls the book, and I quote, a brilliant analysis of everything that went wrong in Afghanistan's post 9-11 journey from darkness to light and back to darkness. Shuja is now based in Australia, working as head of policy, advocacy and communications at Jesuit Refugee Services. He's a former Fulbright Scholar at Georgetown University. He's worked for Human Rights Watch and he's a member of the Caldor Center's advisory committee. From 2019 to 2021, Shuja worked at Kabul's Office of the National Security Council. His role was initially Director for Peace and Civilian Protection, and then he became Director General for International Relations. In this capacity, he had a unique view of the Taliban takeover of the Afghan capital two years ago. He was there during the decline and the shocking fall. The events of August 2021 which most of us witnessed from afar, he experienced close up. Shijan, we are so honored that you will share some of your insights with us today about what happened, about what came after and why. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Lauren. It's a privilege to be with you and to be having this conversation. Excellent. Let's begin by just sketching Afghanistan during its 20 years as a republic. Before we go to your senior work as a senior Afghan civil servant and how it all came to quite a dramatic end, can you paint a broad picture of life in Afghanistan during those years? So after the ouster of the Taliban in late 2001, A lot of Afghans welcomed the international presence, uh, including the presence of large numbers of international troops um, who were there to help uh, Afghanistan rebuild a future for us to reopen our schools, reopen our universities, to restart our clinics and to offer people the opportunity to earn a living, um, to have uh, a semblance of safety, but also to actually look into their future, to the future of their children, and see something positive and promising. Um, And so the early 2000s for Afghanistan were really a time of tremendous hope, but also a time of tremendous possibility because everything was starting, schools, uh, clinics, uh, universities, people were starting businesses. The world was with us. Um, Women were beginning to come out of their homes from the Uh, the confines that had been imposed on the Taliban, going to universities, being elected to um, the parliament, but also working as ministers and deputy ministers and and in very senior capacities. Um, In this time, a lot of this change was not just um, in those uh, visible aspects of life in Afghanistan, but also in the less visible aspects. 
And by that, what I mean is life expectancy, for example, in Afghanistan increased from 45 years dramatically to the 50s and then and then higher than that. Um, the child mortality, although still very high, uh, re- was reduced dramatically. Um, the hope that the people had for the future uh, was increased dramatically. There was a sense of optimism in the air after the uh, ouster of the Taliban in the early 2000s. Oh, what an exciting time. And Absolutely. So by 2021, you were working right in the middle of this, really at the, at the Red Hat Center of Global Geopolitics. You were helping to manage this new republic's security partnerships. And uh, as I mentioned, in your role as Director General for International Relations, tell us about your work. Right. Um, so I had grown up um, in a refugee family in a refugee town in the 1990s in Quetta, Pakistan. So I remember that one time when I returned home after the Taliban's ouster, there was a police official on the Afghan side of the border who said something, who was directing the returnees, and he said uh, something to the effect, turn this way, brother, which to me, it must have been just an off-the-cuff comment by this border guard who was directing people all day who were coming into Afghanistan after years in exile. But to me, that welcoming tone of turn this way, brother, signified that here is a country to which I am welcome, to which I am treated with dignity, to which um, I can actually, in which I can actually receive support and assistance from officials uh, in the country. These were still the early years of 2000, of the 2000s, and the government was still finding its footing. But that one off-the-cuff comment by this uh, police official gave me a sense that I belong in this country now. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say, it, it signaled that you belonged. Absolutely, because a few years before that, we had left the country because we felt like there was no longer any place for us to be here because the Taliban were... Um, making it impossible that they were actually coming not just for your liberties, but also for your life. Um, And so here was the sense of opportunity and possibility. And so that moment gave me hope that we could actually build something here in this country. And when I joined the Office of the National Security Council in um, 2020, 2019 to begin with, but in 2021 in the role that you just mentioned, um, that was sort of the continuation of that sense of possibility of If I am here long enough, and if I work as much as I can, maybe something good will come out of it for the country and for us. Mm. And so were you traveling a lot? What kind of of agreements, what kind of concerns did you deal with? So my portfolio at the Office of the National Security Council involved working with uh, diplomats uh, of all embassies that were present in Afghanistan, but also with the UN, but also with NATO. Um, And because the Office of the National Security Council was really just a secretariat of the presidential palace working on security affairs, so we were in some ways um, working on behalf of the president. So my job was uh, ranged on any given day from working to uh, allay the security concerns of an embassy that wanted further protection for its diplomats and its premises to sending a defective helicopter, say, to Belarus, where it could be fixed under a contract was provided by, say, a neighboring country, to working with another embassy to make sure that our bilateral strategic partnership um, is up to date and ready to sign, to working with 
um, Central Asian countries, for example, to develop a security uh, plan for a trans uh, for, for TAPI, to Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India energy pipeline. Um, so it involved um, all of the above, and sometimes it required me to draft correspondence on behalf of the president and on behalf of the national security advisor to world leaders, including um, uh, the former prime minister, Scott Morrison. What excitement, what a sense of possibility you must have felt in that kind of job. It was, it was a, 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 a privilege to say the least, Lauren. Um, and in particular, it was sort of a, um, a, a privilege that also came with that caveat that this is the this might actually be the end of the rope for Republican Afghanistan, that you have come into this place of possibility and exercise of this government's authority with our international partners at a time when um, the U.S. started to negotiate with the Taliban. And later on, it concluded that deal with the Taliban. And after that, the president, the, the U.S. president decided to withdraw for Afghanistan. So all of that of my work with the international partners was within that context of maybe this is the end of the road uh, for Afghanistan and the very close partnership that we had that maybe with the international community, that maybe this is uh, close to the end of the road for the republic as we knew it. So not just the opening up of all those possibilities, but the understanding that they might all be closing off. Exactly. And for me personally, what really mattered uh, and motivated me throughout the, my time in the government was really to try to do my best to uphold an Afghanistan that had uh, respect and was bound by our constitution. Uh, this constitution is obviously a, an imperfect document, and I think we uh, we capture that elsewhere in, um, in in some of the work that I've done. But it was a document that guaranteed equal rights as citizens in a constitutional republic um, in Afghanistan, um, and it put sovereignty in the hands of the pub the public, the people of Afghanistan, and to me, protecting that document and making sure that uh, that whatever came next, that the Constitution um, had a fundamental place in, in Afghanistan was really important. Yeah, and I I can only imagine the, the sense of um, potential and fragility when the Constitution is new. And, and I really was struck when reading the book. Um, how little we in countries that have been operating under a constitution for a longer time really spend considering the document itself or what it means for us. Absolutely that, but also um, in the 2020s in Afghanistan, there was the, the whole US engagement with the Taliban uh, gave you a sense that that engagement is in many practical ways, undermining the Republican order underpinned by the Constitution in Afghanistan. And so there was a fear that what what the U.S. Special Representative for Afghanistan, Pakistan, Ambassador Khalilzad, has started um, in the shape of negotiations with the Taliban in Doha to the exclusion of the Afghan government, 
um, is in some ways fundamentally undermining the constitutional order in Afghanistan. And I think we've all lived to see uh, the practical effects of that, which are beyond tragic. Absolutely. And when when you talk about the 2020s, I I'm, want to take you back to an article that appeared in the New York Times uh, in 2021. And the journalist wrote, and I'll quote him here, Afghans had endured the agony of displacement and exile for 40 years. The latest wave began in 2014 at the end of the U.S. troop surge, which was followed by an economic recession and the steady loss of territory to the Taliban, which is, I think, the the context you were just talking about as well. And he said that when he would go to parties in Kabul in mid-2021, people kept asking, and you're going to have to correct my pronunciation here, Berem Yibashim? Berem Yibashim, that's right. Okay, which means, uh, I'm told, should we stay or should we go? And he said that even though opportunities to leave were rare, Afghans having, you know, not the same passport privilege as many in the rest of the world, um, when it came to, to traveling without a visa. And I'm just wondering that question, should we stay or should we go, does this ring true to you when you think about that period? Did you ask yourself the same question? Um, I got a scholarship to study my, under, my undergraduate um, in the U.S. In, in 2007. So I was in the U.S. in 2007. And I know friends who went to the U.S. before that, and I know many who went to the U.S. or other countries in Europe, Australia, North America, um, after I went to the U.S. And I think um, for a lot of them, that question was relevant and on top of their minds. Um, As the economic uh, condition in Afghanistan started to deteriorate in the mid, uh, in the 2010s, and as the security situation started to deteriorate in the 2010s and then in the 2020s, a lot of people were asking that question of, should we go or should we stay? And if they were already abroad studying or going for a conference or doing some professional traveling or even some tourism, their question was, should we stay or should we return to Afghanistan? And many of my friends decided to answer that question in the affirmative, which is, Stay and do not return to Afghanistan. And I, um, I completely understand their decision to actually choose to stay abroad in exile instead of returning uh, to Afghanistan, because that decision was motivated by a desire to have a life in a safe and more peaceful place, because all of the trends in Afghanistan are going um, in the opposite direction. For me, when I went to the U.S. in 2007, um, it was an agonizing decision to return to Afghanistan in 2012. Um, and then after that, it was an agonizing decision every time I went abroad um, to decide to come back to Afghanistan. But sometime in 2014 and 15, um, I decided that, um, you know what, I have been uh, running away from um, the Taliban, running away from insecurity, running away from a sense of responsibility in my own country for the whole of my life. And this is finally a possibility where you can just... Um, you know, commit to yourself that for as long as it is possible to be, I will be. 
Um, and um, some sometime in 2014 and 15, I made that decision, um, and uh, and I, I never looked back. And that that took you into this incredible role, and amid this this context of um, sort of you're working for something where you can see a lot of circumstances working against your aims, and I'm wondering if you could just describe a typical day for you back at that time, 2020, 2021. Right, so in the February of 2020, the US um, signed uh, in Doha the agreement with the Taliban, mm. um, under which the US would withdraw all of its forces within 14 months uh, the Taliban would commit to entering into negotiations um, with the Afghan government, and uh, up to 5,000 Taliban prisoners would, were convicted uh, terrorists would be released. Um, and so my job in the lead up to the negotiation, to the signing of that deal, was to liaise with the U.S. embassy and to make sure that at my level, the U.S. embassy is aware of the priorities of the Afghan government but also to liaise with other embassies in Afghanistan who were not being briefed about the progress on the negotiations, to share with them what I knew and to share with them the position of the Afghan government. After this deal was signed, my job was then to coordinate the release, uh, the freeing of the 5,000 Taliban convicted terrorists. But that was one big, uh, one chunk of my job. Uh, it was a major chunk of it because the U.S.-Taliban deal was the uh, main flavor in our relationship with the U.S., but also with NATO. The other part of my job was to um, ensure that we uh, continued our bilateral relations with other countries in the same way that they'd been going on, which is to work with them on implementing U.N. Security Council resolutions against uh, al-Qaeda, Daesh, and the Taliban to work with these embassies to coordinate the visits of high-level officials coming from Europe, Australia, the North, and North America, to coordinate meetings between um, the former Afghan president and some of these heads, other heads of state, his counterparts abroad, but also meetings between um, ambassadors in Afghanistan and my direct boss, the national security advisor, even as we work on documents um, uh, with our regional neighbors to to uh, to negotiate and to draft partnership agreements on uh, water uh, uh, cooperation, transboundary water cooperation, for example, relationships on um, uh, uh, co cooperating and training each other's soldiers uh, on matters of water management, for example. So it, it involved coordination for meetings. It involved coordination with embassies on the important issue of the U.S.-Taliban agreement, but it also involved uh, the day-to-day -day work of uh, uh, negotiating documents, of uh, making sure that multiple government agencies actually are aware of the negotiations and can give their input into the process um, and implementing international rules, uh, sanctions on the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and ISIS. Because who had access to the Taliban-U.S. negotiations? Can you explain, for instance, the role of the government you were working for? Um, so uh, it was an exclusively U.S. and Taliban negotiation. Mm. And the negotiation was not even in Afghanistan. Um, it was um, to the exclusion of the Afghan government. Nobody from Afghanistan was on that table. 
nobody was even in the lobby outside of the conference room where the negotiations are happening. It was also to the exclusion of every other U.S. ally that had gone into Afghanistan in, in 2001, 2002 upon the invitation of the U.S. So it was, it was not only to the exclusion of the Afghan government, but also to the exclusion of these other countries that had gone into, the, into Afghanistan to support the U.S. Um, um, after 9-11. And they also didn't uh, were not uh, as part of that conversation. So it was um, it, it was a, a, a remarkably surreal event to see that these two decades long um, adversaries were now negotiating, but all of the allies of the U.S. were out. Right. They're negotiating and, and the government of Afghanistan itself and all of the allies who joined in trying to support this new government are all, you're all pe picking up the crumbs as best you can because you're not included in what are essentially secret negotiations. They were exactly, that was exactly what they were. They were secret negotiations. Now, the U.S. every once in a while would offer um, updates to Afghanistan. They would offer updates to a group of ambassadors uh, that were in Afghanistan, U.S. allied ambassadors. Uh, but nobody was in those negotiations with the U.S. Okay. And this happens um, in 2020. But, but by the next year, there's a, a new U.S. president. And uh, in April... That U.S. president, which is current President Joe Biden, uh, in April of 2021, he'd said, we will not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. Now, we're all aware at this point that on the 15th of August of that year, the Taliban took over Kabul in a matter of hours. And I think sometimes we forget that this was against every prediction. And I'm wondering if you would um, please take yourself back to that time and tell us how you remember that moment, that the night before, how the day began for you. Sure. Um, I'll take us a, a step uh, even further back. Uh, just really briefly, because the day that President Biden was inaugurated, well, I think it was the 20th of January of 2020, mm. um, sorry, 2021. The following day, his national security advisor, uh, Jake Sullivan, had a call with my boss, the Afghan national security advisor. And I was in on that phone call. And I typed up the notes that would then go to the former president, Ashraf Ghani. And Jake Sullivan said that they are conducting a review of the U.S.-Taliban deal um, and that they would make sure that the Taliban actually live up to their end of the commitment under that deal, which meant negotiations with the Afghan government um, and a number of other commitments. And Jake Sullivan said, if we find in this review that the Taliban are not holding up their end of the bargain, we will make sure that they feel the pain. And to us, what that meant was that here is a new president that is actually coming in with a new objective, um, mm. an objective that actually um, is a little bit more balanced, um, balanced in the sense that they um, are, are not just committed to 
a U.S. withdrawal, but committed to a U.S. withdrawal under conditions that they had negotiated with the Taliban uh, because the Taliban had been known to uh, walk back on a lot of their commitments. For example, they had increased violence, their terrorism, uh, whereas the Americans had been asking them to reduce their violence and their terrorism. Um, so, but then we realized that by April, the review had been finished. And on the 14th of April of 2021, President Biden said, we're completely withdrawing from Afghanistan. That was um, an announcement that actually had a massive impact because here it was, um, the U.S. had given the Taliban the ultimate victory, mm. which is withdrawal, um, without getting any concession from the Taliban in return, which was to negotiate a, a peace agreement with the Afghan government. Um, and so I think the, the result of whether that withdrawal was orderly on the American side is a, has been subject to congressional inquiry and has been subject to reporting, but it has been disastrous on the Afghan side regardless uh, of the word or orderly used by President Biden. And that night, the night of the 14th of uh, August, I had a very small home gym. Um, I worked out at my home gym and, uh, and had a light meal. And I thought, well, I'm going to have a breakfast the following day. Um, around 2 a.m., my fiancé, who was then a fiancé, my wife, was living in, in, in the U.S., sorry, in Australia. Um, she called me and said, look, Things are not looking promising in Afghanistan. I need you to get out. There is a flight tomorrow morning at about 8 a.m. Do you want me to get you a, a ticket on that flight? Mm. And this is 2 a.m. and I'm tired and, I've, and I need to go, go to bed. I was grumpy and I told her, look, you're, you're, yeah, you're overthinking this. Let me go to sleep and we can talk about this the following morning. Uh, grudgingly, she you know, put the... the the headset down and our conversation ended and I went to sleep. And the following morning, I went to the presidential palace for work at 8.30 a.m. This is the morning of the 15th of August. And it was clear that this is unlike any other day that I reported to work on, that something in the air in the city and something in the air in the presidential palace um, is a mess. You can actually feel it. Um, and by 11 a.m. when I left the palace to go take a COVID test, um, and I could not return because in the 30 minutes it took me to take that COVID test, the city had be become chaotic. Everybody was on the streets. Everybody was trying to go home. Um, I, my colleagues in my directorate uh, called me and said, can you drive to the palace and also drive us home because they're, they're asking us to go home. Um, I tried to go to the presidential palace, but the crowds were such that I could not drive in that direction. And I had to excuse myself and say, my apologies, but the, the, uh, I cannot really drive. You have to walk if you can. Um, so my colleagues walked home that day um, in that chaos. But fast forward into the afternoon when the president... Mm -hmm. So at 8.30 in the morning, you get there and there's a feeling of tension, of anticipation, but there aren't people crowding the streets or anything yet. And Not by yet, the no. time, you can't get there in a car. Absolutely. And, and part of this was that there were people who were lining up outside of banks to withdraw whatever deposits they had. And this sort of run on the bank had started a couple of days earlier. 
but on this day, it intensified to levels um, that you had crowds of people um, uh, outside of banks uh, to the to the point that they were interfering with traffic. And obviously, everybody who'd been who'd gone to work that day was now going home, and everybody who was uh, and so that also contributed to the traffic. Um, but um, ultimately, I, I made the decision that. The traffic is too bad. I can't go to go to go back to the office. The traffic is too bad. I can't go back to to my house. Um, and the president has just left the the country in his helicopter. Maybe the the safest place at this moment is for me to be at the airport. Mm. So I drove in the direction of the airport, and later on, you could see that the numbers of checkpoints leading up to the airport were diminishing by the hour um, and around in, in, as I was looking to find a flight to get out of Afghanistan, um, now that everything was crumbling, uh, I sat in the VIP lounge uh, with dozens of other people and um, outside darkness was falling and the charge on my phone was dying as I was trying to um, contact people who, who might be able to help me get a ticket. Um, at one point, as the darkness was falling and I was worried about my phone, I looked up from my phone and the dozens of people in this VIP lounge had all gone. And it was only me and one woman uh, sitting uh, in the lounge, both of us, unsure as to what to do and where to go. And that was the moment when I realized that the Taliban could enter the airport at any moment. The Taliban could come into this VIP lounge and take us at any moment. And there was high levels of uncertainty as, as to what the Taliban might do to an official of the National Security Council now left um, in Kabul uh, at the airport. And I thought to myself, you know, you've made all of the life decisions that you have. You've made the decision in response to Burim Yogonim, and you decided to stay. And mm -hmm. that has brought you to this point. You have lived a good, fruitful life. You have had a good education. You have done your best. And you now accept whatever comes next as the Taliban come and take you. So I made peace with whatever fate that might have uh, befallen us um, on that evening uh, of the 15th of August at the airport as the Taliban were coming in. Um, oh, my goodness. But and, they didn't come in that night. They didn't come in that night. Um, what I didn't know was that there had been coordination between the Taliban and the U.S. who were flying in thousands of Marines into the airport. And so to avoid in the darkness of the night any um, untoward incident, um, um, I think the Taliban decided to uh, keep out of the airport uh, for several hours more. Um, and... But, but I didn't know that. Um, all I knew was that the Taliban were in the city, and they were. All I knew was that the president had left, and he had. And all we knew were that there there were no planes leaving the airport, um, and there weren't. Um, and all we knew was that the Taliban were in complete control now. So those first hours of complete uncertainty about what might happen to Kabul and its citizens really were... Um, gut-wrenching, uh, because the Taliban themselves were entering a city uh, and didn't know what to expect. So 
So they were nervous and on the edge. And the city was nervous and on the edge. Um, and anything could have happened uh, in those highly uncertain, intense hours on the 15th of August. And you find yourself in this sort of limbo in in a VIP lounge in an airport where it's not even clear what's happening at the airport. Well, it was plenty clear what was happening at the airport in the sense that uh, there were no flights leaving the airport and that people had actually found their way onto the tarmac uh, trying to board and, and try to sit in planes that had been left uh, on the taxiway. Um, every once in a while, you would hear gunfire going on around you, but it was not clear as to who was firing at whom. Um, and, and, and meanwhile, it was pitch darkness. And uh, one of my one of my friends from graduate school, bless her heart, uh, she she messaged me and said, "Hey, I know that there are no commercial flights, but I am happy to send you a private jet to <laughs> to evacuate you. Can we do that?" Uh, and here I was thinking, A, for effort and creative thinking, thinking outside of the box, but no private jet can land in this airport and land and take off safely. Uh, but there were those moments of levity. as, And I think that really shows you um, that you were living the tension at this airport trapped, but there were a lot of people outside of Afghanistan, later I learned, um, who were on the edge themselves and who were trying to help their loved ones, their friends, their former colleagues, uh, people that they had known and studied with. Um, and, and I'm forever grateful for everybody who was in touch with me on that day um, to, to help me. And can you tell us how did you get out of that lounge? Um, ultimately, um, late into the night, um, there was a Khmer plane that was uh, on the tarmac. Um, somehow I found my way into that plane, as did dozens of other people. Mm. And um, obviously this plane had no crew. It had no captain. Mm. I don't know what we were thinking by sitting in this plane. We thought magically that some, somehow the captain might materialize and this plane might take off. Uh, but this is August in Kabul and August is the hottest month of the year and this is also the, the height of COVID um, and I remember thinking uh, should I put on my mask so I can avoid uh, infection or should I take it off so I can avoid the heat um, after staying like that in that cramped uh, airplane packed like sardines people packed like sardines in it sitting on the chairs but also standing back to back in the aisles um, I saw that the vice president of the country uh, is also sitting a few rows ahead of me, and ultimately he rose up. And he rose up, and he uh, decided to leave the plane. And I thought, well, maybe the vice president knows something that I don't know. Maybe I should follow him. And the decision to leave a plane that you have finally found after hours of uncertainty uh, was, uh, was a difficult decision. But I thought, here's the vice president. So I followed him. Uh, it turns out that he had no additional information or no additional way to safety uh, that anybody else didn't. But he actually had two armored vehicles that were parked right underneath the vehicle, the, the airplane. And very lucky for us, the 
vehicles, his vehicles had Samsung Galaxy chargers, which I used to charge my phone um, and started calling uh, the U.S. You know, diplomats, NATO diplomats, U.S. soldiers, NATO soldiers, to plead with them to come and save the vice president of the country who's stranded in this airport. And ultimately, uh, they sent a group of people who would uh, drive the vice president and his entourage and me on the side up to the safer side of the airport. Um, and we took a Turkish Airlines flight the following morning um, to leave Afghanistan with the clothes in our back. Wow. And did he tell you what his plan was in, in, you know, later, why he got off the plane to get in his car? Was he just? He didn't tell me and I didn't ask, but it was evident. Uh, it was it was obvious. Uh, it was extremely claustrophobic on that plane. It was extremely hot on that plane. There was no water on that plane. And he had been waiting there for five or six hours in that plane with no certainty. I think I think he just about uh, had it with, with being locked up on that plane like that. And how happy were you to find a phone charger? Lauren, it restored my connection to the world. <laughs> I had been an isolated unit uh, by now because my phone died. Your phone dies and, and I had no way to recharge it. And that charger reconnected us to the world. It reconnected me to the U.S. Embassy, to NATO Embassy, to the Turkish Embassy, um, who enabled us uh, to get out. So I was ecstatic when I saw that charger. And it's not very common in Afghanistan, or at least uh, generally, I think you're more likely to have an iPhone charger than a Samsung Galaxy charger. But here we were uh, on this random uh, VIP vehicle with a charger for a Samsung Galaxy. That's so amazing. And when you add in all the details about the heat and the people packed back to back, we all have been on a bus or a train like that for maybe five, 10, half an hour, you know, but five hours at the hottest day of the year when this, you're hearing gunfire. It's just extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. Now, as that narrative comes to a, a partial conclusion with your own evacuation, do you... Um, do you look back? I, I mean, I, I'm so grateful for you to for sharing this with us. But I know as difficult as it is for us to hear about all of this, it, it pales in comparison to experiencing it. And I want to give you an opportunity to sort of add anything else. But I, I also just want to thank you for sharing your insight with us. Thank you, Lauren. Um, it, I think. There, the, the, the big thing for a lot of us who evacuated uh, and some of us who had the privilege to work in the government um, was that it took us a while to fully come to terms with the enormity of the loss that Afghanistan had experienced in the forcible return of the Taliban. Um, for us to come to grasp to the fact that not only had we lost our jobs and our careers as civil servants, but also our children, the opportunity to go to school, go to university and make a future for themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, but also for our entrepreneurs to actually have a trusted relationship with counterparts abroad without 
falling afoul of international sanctions imposed on the Taliban, but um, by, by fact extended to the Afghan economy. Um, for our teachers, our parents, uh, and others who, for women for whom life and Afghanistan being a territory had gradually only now narrowed only to the confines of their home again, as they were stopped from going to school, from having a career, from being outside the house without a male relative. Um, it took us a while to come to terms with the enormity of all that this loss had meant for us. And I think this is the loss, um, uh, generational loss. And, and it, it, I also understand um, that I think for a lot of our international partners, our um, soldiers who served in Afghanistan, diplomats who worked with the, with the Afghan government, with me and with my counterparts, um, they shared um, in, in their own ways and contributed in their own ways um, a, a, a hope for a, a democratic and Republican uh, Afghanistan. And I think a lot of us are feeling the pain and the disappointment um, of that all. And, and I just want to make sure that I, I acknowledge uh, that shared hope and that shared uh, endeavor, that shared sense of purpose that we had um, with the world at some point, at that point. And so I'd like to point anyone listening again to your book, The Decline and Fall of a Republican Afghanistan, which is out now from Hearst Publishers. Congratulations. If you would, to finish our interview, I'd love to ask you to read the book's dedication page. I'd be happy to do that. So the dedication reads, dedicated to those courageous and steadfast members of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces and their families, who in the face of tremendous odds gave so much to Afghanistan and received so little in return. Dedicated to the Afghans and their friends who shared the dream of a Republican and democratic Afghanistan and worked towards it in their own ways. And dedicated to the Afghans for whom hope died on the 15th of August of 2021 and dedicated to the Afghans resisting the Taliban's tyranny and keeping the nation's aspirations for a more just country alive. How wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Norman. It was a pleasure to speak to you. Mm-hmm.